This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. My first guest of the morning joins us on Smart Arts. Jason Kavanagh is somebody who, if you've been involved in the Melbourne kind of independent theatre scene on and off over the years, you'll probably know Jason. He ran The Owl and the Pussycat, which was an independent theatre space in Richmond that opened back in 2009? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Ran that for a few years, became a, a really valuable part of the, the Melbourne arts ecology. Then eventually people get kind of go, I'm really tired of running a small independent theatre. Sold it, you've done other things, but you've now created a brand new space in North Fitzroy. That's right. The Motley Bauhaus, which is mm-hmm. a bit of a different model. Tell us more. Yeah, so it, it it certainly shares some similarities in that it's it's supporting independent artists and, and encouraging people to get involved in the arts and encouraging a kind of wider audience um, that might usually be exposed to this sort of um, independent sector. But um, the uh, idea is very much that it's a much more multi multidisciplinary space. So we're concentrating a lot to begin with uh, on visual arts and um, and we've got a podcasting booth as well. So it's it's about trying to bring in those sort of people and then early next year we'll be opening the uh, the small theatre as well. So we'll get back into familiar territory when that happens. One of the things that intrigues me about the idea of the venue, which uh, for people who are wondering where in Fitzroy North the Motley Bauhaus is, it's literally around the corner from everybody's favourite supermarket, Peter Monty's, <laughs> on Scotchmere Street at 102 Scotchmere Street in an old veterinary. Yeah, in the old vet, yeah. 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 Which yeah. means has the added advantage that that back room where the animals used to be kept overnight is soundproof. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, soundproof-ish it is, yeah, yeah. It's also also very sterile and we have uh, air conditioning, which is another big change from the air. <laughs> that, that's definitely going to be a bonus come the middle of summer when it's 40 degrees and the last thing you want to be doing is sitting in a sweaty room with yeah, that's right. kind of 30 other people. But I'm also intrigued by the fact that, as you said, that this is a multidisciplinary space. So mm-hmm. it's not just a theatre, mm-hmm. it's not just um, exhibition spaces or small studios for mm-hmm. artists and it's not just podcasting, it's everything rolled in together. Where did this idea come from? Is it is it something you picked up overseas? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I um, like. I mean, similar similar to the owl. The, the owl was born uh, from looking at the spaces in Berlin and, and Amsterdam. Um, this space, yeah. We, we, I went. Me and my partner Frey went on a artist residency last year in in Iceland, and then we travelled around to Morocco, and then a few places through Europe. And again, I was watching how the art spaces have changed since I since I was last there, and and uh, yeah, was inspired to open this space. Uh, and, it, and it's slightly, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of space and it kind of takes people a little while to get their head around exactly what goes on there. Um, uh, but, but the Motley Bauhaus was very much, the, the name came from kind of me trying to describe what the space was. The Motley is, kind of describes the multidisciplinary nature and just the kind of vague nature of being an artist and being around. It's, you tend to hang out with a bit of a Motley crew of people. And, uh, uh, and the Bauhaus is born from the kind of... Um, from the 1990s Bauhaus, from 1919 Bauhaus uh, movement, which was about um, encouraging um, skills-based art practice and, <clears throat> sorry, about um, encouraging artists to kind of be more 
be more active in, in being a part of the community and, 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 and that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to encourage independent artists to, to kind of find a voice and get out there in the community and, 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 and practice their craft. And I love the fact that it's craft and art because there yeah. is often sometimes a divide between craft practices mm. and what is considered more elite arts practice. Yeah. You've created a space in which the two can overlap and combine mm. and that includes, for example, running a, a broad range of workshops for members of the local community. So it's not just about presenting work, but bringing people in so they can make work themselves and upskill. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I'm excited about that program that, that because it, it, it affords us the opportunity to offer a bunch of independent artists, you know, ongoing paid work if the workshops work, if the workshops work. And then... Um, uh, and also it, it, it kind of helps us to fulfil our brief of reaching out to the community, inviting people in and learning skills and getting people more kind of actively involved in, in, in art and creation. And like you say, like um, combining the art and craft was very much um, going back to the Bauhaus, the Walter Gropius's kind of view. He, he famously said, um, the artist is nothing more than a glorified craftsman. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's what I want. I want. I want to try and encourage people to kind of get back in touch with their craft and, and share it with the community. What kind of workshops are we talking about? Well, the first one coming up is 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 a is a pretty standard one. It's an introduction to watercolor, um, which is you know it's a it's a great one because watercolor of all the kind of art, um, painting disciplines is is very much about technique. So it's a it's a good thing to kind of learn and teach. Um, but with with some of the other ones, we've tried to kind of we're trying to get get more kind of niche and more kind of into people's practices. So there's, there's stuff like cyanotype and, and cockadama and, and a bunch of other stuff that I've, I'd never heard of before they came and said, I can teach this. Um, just the other day I had an artist come to me and say that they could, um, oh, I can't for the life of me call, remember what it's called, but it's about painting with egg. Yeah, which is an old, it's an old medium. Yeah. Mm. Um, now you mentioned that there is a podcasting booth there as well, which is something else that really intrigues me because I mean, podcasting is so hot right now. <laughs> but right. also the fact that it tra- can encourage people to transition from being a listener slash consumer mm-hmm. to being a creator of their own content. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and uh, the booth has uh, glass panels, so it's it's encouraging people to to put on podcasts and 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 engage in this medium that's usually quite a passive engagement, where they where they're listening to it on on a completely different time in a completely different space through headphones. Here you can um, you can actually come into the space and watch people recording and 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 be an active active participant in that and like you say you can you can actually get in the booth and and make your make your own podcast which is what I'm very much encouraging people to do so does that mean there will also be podcasting workshops in terms of teaching people the basics of recording and editing audio for example yeah absolutely yeah and and to use the booth you have you have to do a, a short kind of course in how to actually use the equipment and 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 that sort of stuff so by the end of that you know uh, one hour course you should be kind of on top of how to use the equipment and, and the basics of how to put put the show together, uh, and then you can choose to have a technician or not. But yeah, yeah, there are workshops, and and we very much kind of guide people through the process. I'm chatting with Jason Kavanagh, who's the shall, are we calling you the proprietor the, <laughs> <I guess so. laughs> uh, of the Motley Bauhaus, which is a new art, craft, and performance centre in North uh, in Fitzroy North uh, at 102 Scotchmere Street. If you were 
been talking a bit about the workshop. So if you want to know about the range of workshops, just go to themotley.com.au forward slash workshops and you can get a sense of uh, what is on offer. Mm. And perhaps also if you think you have a, a craft or a skill you'd like to teach, perhaps also drop uh, yeah, in a line touch, about yeah. that as well. Mm. Now, there's also a performance space, as we've said, mm-hmm. which is quite an intimate space. Mm-hmm. How many people are we... Is it like 30-seater? Yeah, well, under 30-seater. If, you, if you've got 30 people in there, you'd be really kind of stretching. Okay, <laughs> stretching so 25 Yeah, something, somewhere yeah. around there, yeah. Um, what kind of performances are you envisaging there? Acoustic music, clearly. Uh, what Are you thinking of theatre? Oh yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. If you can get it in the space, I'm, I'm willing to. I'm willing to host it. Um, but uh, with you know, realistically, there's going to be probably a lot of cabaret, comedy, stand-up, burlesque, that sort of thing. Uh, it's it, as you say, it's a very small space. And anyone who is in, uh, familiar with the Owl, it's even smaller than that, because uh, you know, I looked around at the Owl and often thought. The problem with this space is it's too big. <laughs> well, it, and, but it also then answers the need f- that some performers have for um, an experimental space where they yeah. can test out work yeah. and that, as you say, is actually a genuinely intimate space. Like, they want to put something on in front of an audience, yeah. but not necessarily 50 or 100 people. Yeah, it's absolutely. kind of like 15, 20 people mm-hmm. to get it a new work in front of an audience and just gauge it how it lands for example yeah and it is it is still a, a black box space so it's it's adaptable in that sense that all the seats are movable you can take all the seats out you can you can incorporate the rest of the venue you cannot there's, so there's there is some kind of room to play there and i will add that that it, we do have a projector as well so it, it does make a really good place space for uh, film screenings now jason you had an open day on sunday where mm-hmm. members of the community could come in and Basically, whether if they live in the area, for example, mm-hmm. just stick their heads in and go, yep. what is actually happening in here? <laughs> uh, when do you expect that the Motley Bauhaus will be fully up and running in terms of workshops, performances, etc.? Right, OK. Well, we have our, we have our first workshop uh, this evening, actually, the Introduction to Watercolour. Um, still spaces left. <laughs> um, and then... And then moving forward, so so at the moment we're just open when there's workshops running. Uh, moving forward, we'll have the residency program kicking off very shortly, and once that happens, then then there'll be more exhibitions in the space, so the space will be open more regularly. And then come February next year, the bar and the theatre will be open, and so people will come in and be able to watch shows as well. So at that stage, by then, we should be open pretty much you know, every day of the week. So you can just wander in and see what's going on. Now, I'm sure some people are going, a bar, oh my God, it's actually just a it's a, a pub by stealth or something. <laughs> but it's a, an established fact that even venues like Art Centre Melbourne make a lot of their profit over you know, a drink at the bar before a show or after a show. Yeah. So that's clearly a valuable part of it. Yeah. And it, for me, it's uh, having back in a, in a previous life, effectively, served on the, uh, the board of the storeroom theatre mm-hmm. back in the day. It's lovely to have a new theatre slash performance slash multi-arts and workshop space back in Fitzroy North. Yeah, yeah, very close to the old storeroom. In fact, I took a pitch to over to them to see if they would consider reopening that space, but uh, unfortunately they, they weren't interested. <laughs> How long has it taken you to find a venue, uh, get it ready and get it ready to open? Uh, it's, it's, to find a venue did not take very long at all. Uh, there was a police site on the vet, uh, which uh, is the corner of the street that I live on, uh, so I happened across that. Uh, to get it through planning, uh, it has taken a really long, long time, and uh, there's been, you know, a few neighbours worried about about what I'm doing, and so um, it's been a long time to kind of work through that process and try and reassure everyone that I'm not, in fact, opening a bar or a nightclub, that it's an arts venue, and and that it's going to be a positive impact on the area. 
Well, given how many arts organisations have moved out of the city of Yarra over the mm. years because rent is no longer affordable and so on, I yeah. think having a new art space in the area is certainly valuable. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give if anybody else listening is thinking, maybe I should open a small multi-purpose art space in my suburb? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, look, patience and adaptability and, and just, just trying to roll with the punches. And, and, and look, my, my main motto is try and make it work for you. You know, if every... You know, a roadblock is just is just you being redirected by another street. So you've got to figure out how to make that route work for you. The Motley Bauhaus is a new art, craft, and performance centre at 102 Scotchmere Street in Fitzroy North. Jump online themotley.com.au for more information. Workshops kicking off tonight. There's a podcasting studio for hire if you have ever wanted to make your own uh, podcast and not quite known how to do it. There will be more workshops. There will be uh, uh, residencies and artist studios available in the new year and a live performance space as well. I'm looking forward to seeing some cabaret and some burlesque and some comedy and some live music and uh, maybe even a, a one-man theatre show in the space uh, in the early in the new year. Jason Kavanagh, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Richard. Day today, and one of the reasons I wanted to play the Goon Sacks is because my next guests are expat Brisbanians who have moved to Melbourne. Uh, so you're now Melbournians, congratulations! Um, but from the independent theatre company, the Danger Ensemble, I'm joined by Stephen Mitchell Wright, who's the kind of director uh, and uh, artistic director of the company and ensemble member Katrina Cornwall. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Hi. So, um, why make the move? I guess the first question that everybody will be asking is why move from Brisbane, where you'd been an established company for what about a decade, down to Melbourne, where you're much less established and much uh, kind of not as well known. Yeah. Well. Kat actually made the move much, much earlier than me. That's true. Um, Trailblazer. Yes, I moved down in, I think, uh, 2012, 13. I think 2013, um, I officially moved down to Melbourne and that was like for personal and professional reasons. I was interested in studying at VCA um, and I went there and did um, the Masters of Community Arts and Cultural Development. Which, is that course still running? Yeah, or? it's not going anymore. Yeah, I thought... No, yeah. they axed it. Yeah. Oh, well, at least you got in before that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and Kat runs a company down here called Riot Stage Youth Theatre, mm-hmm. uh, and Kat's been doing that since she's been down. But the Danger Ensemble came down last November um, for a lot of reasons. Personal, being I was ready to live in another city, and, and a lot of the artists that also moved down with us felt that way too, and... We'd had a really good run for a decade in Brisbane and was ready for a change. We wanted to be uncomfortable again. We wanted to introduce ourselves to new audiences. We wanted to force ourselves to redefine our practice and and see what happens in a new place. And it, it's kind of slightly ironic that you say making yourselves uncomfortable, given that you're starting off this kind of new life in Melbourne with a very comfortable work, a work that's very familiar to you as an ensemble, as a company, uh, in terms of uh, the production, The Hamlet Apocalypse, which has also been performed in Melbourne before, but not for, what, eight years or something. It was on at... La nine Mama, years. Nine years at La, so at La Mama a long time ago. Yeah, the work... In some ways, it's, it's comfortable in the sense that we, we have a good sense of how it functions now. This is our fifth season of the work. Um, but executing this work for, for all of us is, is never a comfortable experience. It's, it's a very, very difficult and taxing work for the performers. Uh, it's one of the most difficult works we've ever created to rehearse. 
uh, it's deeply unpleasant to <laughs> to go through over and over again. It's one of those shows every time, right before I say the words, okay, we're going to run again. <laughs> I have a big inhale. I feel terrible. I try to bless myself and apologise and then, then we go through it again. So, yeah, it's comfortable in the sense that we have a good understanding of it and we have a have a nice theory about how audiences react to it, but it, it's by no means a safe choice. Why is it so uncomfortable? Well, as a show, um, there is a mechanism within it where there's kind of two competing intentions, and one is the intention of the actor to do a good job at Hamlet, and the second competing intention is that the world is ending and what would you actually want to be doing if that was happening? So at any one time, um, there's these two things that you're fighting for and working for, and everyone in the cast, so there's seven actors is also going through that struggle and all of those struggles collide in sometimes wonderful and sometimes awful ways. And the seven actors are playing fictionalised versions of yourselves mm-hmm. uh, who have chosen to spend the last night alive on Earth performing Hamlet. Yes, for some crazy reason we decide to do the show anyway. And I don't know if that would actually happen for me personally in real life, but for, for, this, um, for this version of the show and for, the, for, that, for that moment of the um, hour, and, hour and a quarter of the show... I find a way to decide to do it. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily fictionalised versions of themselves, though. I would say they're playing themselves. But, but slightly the f- heightened versions? Or? Mm, no, the, the, the premise is heightened. The, the fictional buy-in is that the world is ending, but it's, I wouldn't say it's heightened versions of themselves. It's themselves if the world was ending. Mm. So it's not like a caricature of myself. It's like me going through these stakes. And what about the characters in Hamlet that you're playing? Are they caricatured, given that they're almost characters that everybody knows mm. so well? The, the mopey, depressed boy who can't make up his mind, <laughs> kind of, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We are definitely trying to do our best job of, of, those, of those characters in the circumstances that we're given. Um, and I think that we start with really good intentions, but the integrity of the show itself breaks down as the end of the performance gets closer and people just give up and decide it's not that important or half-heartedly do their lines, whereas other people right to the very last moment are trying to do their best job as an actor under very difficult circumstances. Stephen, the work has been around for quite a few years. Take us back to its its origins. What was the catalyst for the creation? Well, we were on tour, uh, Kat, myself, uh, Tora Highland, Mark Hill and Lyndon Chester, who is not an actor but a wonderful violinist. Um, We were on tour with Amanda Palmer. We were doing a world tour for her first solo album, Who Killed Amanda Palmer? And we hit Christmas break and we were in Boston and it was absolutely freezing. And we knew that the tour was coming to an end and we wanted to begin work on what could be next for us. And touring with Amanda was phenomenal and the work was great, but the journey of all of the works we did with Amanda was three minutes long Mm. or, or... in the case of Amanda, sometimes seven and a half because she likes to play a long song and talk a lot. Um, So I wanted to do something big and I remember going to the actors saying, I want to do something either about the start of everything, creation, myths, the big bang or the end of everything. And the actors kind of unanimously said, let's let's look at the end of everything. Well, so it must have kind of really resonated given it was the end of a tour, mm. kind of all that kind of thing. And because we were in Boston, there'd also been a blizzard, which felt very apocalyptic in itself. Like we were, we were all holed up in this tiny apartment for a number of days, not being able to go outside. Yeah, and so we started developing a work about the apocalypse. Um, 
and I think it was, it was as early as day three of that development in this tiny, beautiful little tiny theatre called the Factory Theatre in Boston, uh, where it became evident we were dealing with a show about a group of actors dealing with the end of the world. And that night I went, OK, why are they in a space? Why are they in a theatre? And I read a bunch of plays and I think I skimmed through Hamlet and went, no, 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 it's too big. It's not that one. And then by 9 o'clock the next morning, I was like, well, I think it has to be Hamlet. Let's let's see what happens. And the next day at rehearsals, I, I ran off to a bookshop, bought a bunch of copies and said, I just want us to read this knowing that the world was about to end. And listening to that read was incredibly moving. Like All of this really lofty, existential, pensive stuff that Hamlet's known for suddenly became really urgent and concrete and heartbreaking, I think. In the edit of Hamlet we've done now, I think one of the first lines I hear that in is, is one of Cat's, um, all that lives must die, passing mm-hmm. through nature to eternity, where you hear that out of the mouth of somebody who's not sure how soon their life is going to end and it suddenly has a really different resonance. And it wasn't as simple as going, OK, it's Hamlet, now let's do it. It was actually quite a difficult work to create. We went down very, very many different paths before we set it on this one. under four or five different stages of development. Mm. At one point, it was almost like an episode of South Park. Yes, it's true. I'm glad that didn't happen. That that was the caricature version. (laughs) That was the caricature version. Uh, And then we did the development at La Mama. So we finished that tour uh, with a little leg in Europe and then we did the rest of the tour in Australia and we finished in Perth. And then I moved to Melbourne briefly before getting a bunch of contracts in Brisbane and in that time we locked in a season at Fringe at La Mama and we had a couple more developments and did the first season there. And f- uh, I think we found the heart of the work in that season. Uh, no, no, we found the form of the work in that season and then a couple of years later we took it to Adelaide Fringe and I think we found the heart of the work in that season. It was much more uh, aggressive and unguarded emotional extremity and then I think it settled and we found the, the marriage between both when we did the La Boite season in 2011. So that's the history of it and the background mm. of it. What's it like now and, and aesthetically what's it like now? What can Melbourne audiences expect when they come to see the Hamlet Apocalypse Act Theatre Works in St Kilda between the 7th and the 18th of November? Mm. Um, I was talking to my mum on the phone the other day who last saw the work in Melbourne, which was like 2011, a very long time ago, and she was like, well, is it's it 2009. still the... 2009, thank you. Even she longer. Was like, she was like, is it still the same? And I'm like, no, it's been through so many developments after that. Like, we've really refined what the work is and I think now uh, because because we know what it is, it's performed with such um, a boldness and a rigour and it's very unapologetic in what it is. And aesthetically it's refined itself as well. I mean, starting in La Mama, I think everyone listening probably knows that tiny little space. Mm. May it rest in peace. Um, it, it will rise from the ashes. It will rise from the ashes. <laughs> I promise. Um, so it was tiny. I think we had 42 people in there. We sold out that season. The front row was spitting distance from the actors literally a lot of the time. Uh, and I think we did it in... We did do it in a mixture of corporate blacks and this amazing black dress we found for Katrina, mm-hmm. which was kind of the only, like, dressy costume piece. Um, we carried that aesthetic to Adelaide, where we did it in a gutted cinema, uh, which was the opposite. It was a gigantic space with something like 14-metre asbestos-filled ceilings. Um, so then when we took it to La Bois, we took it to the first kind of larger conventional theatre space and we were able to refine what the set and costumes could be. And we've just kind of evolved and refined that since then. 
and we worked with an amazing uh, costume co-costume designer last year, Oscar Clark, who um, created these phenomenal, quite traditional costumes. They're kind of, they're, they're costumed for Hamlet, but they kind of break down and decay throughout the show as well. Uh, and otherwise, it's it's kind of a, a take on a theatre space, but it is a set. It's we're not just working in a blank blank theatre anymore. Are you still using Dane Alexander's score? Because mm-hmm. uh, I found a review from uh, the La Boite season in 2011 which talked about uh, uh, as the countdown gets closer to zero and the rough rehearsal becomes more desperate and chaotic, hurtling towards destruction, the beautifully disturbing soundtrack by Dane Alexander comes to the fore. It becomes an overwhelming presence almost in direct opposition to the lighting which, is, which starts bold and becomes subtle as it speeds towards the end. So just thinking about those kind of aspects of the work as well, we've spoken a lot about the performance and the feel of it, but I love the fact that a review like that can then also highlight the role that kind of sound design and lighting design plays in the work as well. And you've clearly worked a long time as an ensemble with the the same team, so presumably that makes conversations about how to evolve and change the work kind of easier as well. Mm. Um, Because we've been a company for such a long time, um, we have a really refined aesthetic, which is really based in the visual and in the, uh, like, sensory experience of being in the theatre. So it's very live and it's about how all of the elements work and speak together. Um, And I'm not sure, like, has the sound evolved that much from the last season to this one? Uh, Kat wasn't in the last season. Kat Kat stepped out for the Judith Wright Centre season because she had commitments in Melbourne. Um... And Caroline Dunphy jumped in for th- for that round, but uh, Dane did make some changes to the score, but not many. Um, the lighting, the sound, and the design work pretty harmoniously, or well, actually quite incongruously, intentionally with with the performance at times. Um, Dane's work and Ben's work on this show is, in my opinion, genius. Like this, the entire show is scored from beginning to end, and that review's right. By the by, the final few minutes of the show, the sound engulfs the theatre and it's it's quite breathtaking. Which is what you want in something apocalyptic. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, another review from the much more recent season at the at the, the Judith Wright Centre, the Judy, uh, in uh, just last year, describes the work as um, both a homage, uh, a homage to Shakespeare and a testament to the power of live theatre, using all the tools unique to theatre to provide an experience that can't be imparted from a screen. It's intimate and immersive, live and pulsing, and the risks and messes you see on stage are real and dangerous. Sounds exactly like my cup of tea. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think theatre needs to do what film and television cannot. Uh, I think that that's one of our goals as a company is to know how we are different from, from the other forms of engagement or entertainment people can access. The Hamlet Apocalypse by the Danger Ensemble uh, is on at Theatre Works, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. Uh, You can jump online to book at www.theatreworks.org.au or you can call 9534-3388. That's 9534-3388 or theatreworks.org.au if you'd like to book to see The Hamlet Apocalypse. And if you want more information about the company, The Danger Ensemble, jump online DangerEnsemble.com. I've been chatting with Stephen Mitchell Wright and Katrina Cornwall from the Danger Ensemble about the Hamlet Apocalypse, and thank you both for coming in. Thank, thank you, Richard. And 
so far on the program, we've talked about a multi-purpose art space in North Fitzroy. We've talked about independent theatre at TheatreWorks. It's time for us now to talk about cinema as an art form. Uh, and I am very happy to be joined in the studio by Louise Malcolm, who's the creative director of TILDA, the Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival. Louise, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. So uh, tell us a little bit uh, about Tilda, it began several years ago, has moved around, changed a little bit as film festivals do, entirely volunteer run mm. and running for the, what, the second year out at Footscray Community Arts Centre? Yes, the second year out at Footscray Community Arts Centre. It's been around since 2014. So it was started by a group of trans and gender diverse people and allies uh, back in 2014. So this year's our fourth festival and we have moved around, yes, uh, several different venues, but very happy to have found a home out at Footscray Community Community Arts Centre um, and running there for the second time this year. So the festival itself is on from the 8th to the 11th of November, so it's a compact festival rather than something that's spread out over two or three weeks, which means put it in your diary now, folks, rather than uh, going, oh, I must get around to that. That's right. And obviously, as the name suggests, the, the full title, uh, it's specifically focused on films about uh, and by uh, the trans and gender diverse experience. And I was intrigued to see that that does not include uh, a focus on intersex people because, uh, and I think that's a really kind of positive decision to say intersex is something different. So talk to us about... Yeah, about I mean, often uh, they're conflated uh, in a sort of public imagination. So uh, the the decision to not include intersex was actually uh, in consultation with the peak intersex body in Australia. Uh, yeah, to, um, yeah, not to sort of feed into the idea that there is no difference between uh, identifying as trans or, or being intersex. Uh, we, this may change, but at the moment we're, we're keeping this, this distinction. I mean, in terms of the, the festival content and, yep. And uh, let's talk about the films themselves. There's a, a broad range of works, uh, kind of, uh, including uh, a local documentary, documentary Trans Black. There's also a youth shorts program and, and more. So talk us through some of the, the festival highlights. Yep, no worries. Uh, so we're opening the festival with an Australian premiere, a film called Trans Geek. Uh, it's a documentary about the intersection of trans and geek identities. So... It explores how trans people uh, use different forms of geek culture, uh, gaming, being included uh, to sort of explore their gender identity, but it also explores um, people working in the science and technology fields. Uh, so it covers a lot of ground. It's a really interesting documentary. Uh, so it's directed by Kevin McCarthy, who's going to be with us for the screening, and it's co-directed by a, a trans filmmaker, Sayer Johnson. So I would say that it's really important that uh, the, every film in the program w is made either by a trans diverse person or in collaboration with a trans diverse person. When we're going about the programming, we always keep that at the forefront of our minds because it's a sort of um, a two-pronged thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to support the work of trans diverse artists but also um, give a platform for films that are about trans diverse people so it's uh, yeah, it's definitely at the forefront of our mind when we're when we're doing the selections. Uh, some other highlights: there's another Australian uh, documentary series uh, on the Friday night. It's called Unboxed, and we're going to have the director Sam Matthews on hand for a Q and A, and a couple of people from the film, a couple of art local artists, um, are going to be on hand on the Friday night. 
so I've got that on Friday night with a bunch of uh, short uh, short documentaries as well. Uh, as you mentioned, we've got the youth shorts. So that's on the Saturday afternoon, and that's going to be uh, an open caption session uh, for the deaf community and hard of hearing. So really excited about that. The first time we've managed to pull off an open caption session, hoping to do more of that into the future. Uh, Trans Black, as you mentioned, yep, an excellent film uh, about brother boys and sister girls. Uh, that's uh, Aboriginal... Uh, trans people in Australia and we're going to have two people from that film on hand for a conversation afterwards which will be really interesting they're going to talk about their experience of making that film. Fantastic. To come back to uh, Trans Geek, one of the films, uh, one of the things that fascinates me about hearing about this film is the the fact that I would imagine that for some trans and gender diverse people that kind of seeing the world as relatively unwelcoming or perhaps threatening, the idea of being able to use geek culture to either imagine or kind of create through technology a world which is actually supportive and welcoming. You know, I can really see the, the kind of connections and the, and the parallels there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of the film is um, people playing Dungeons and & Dragons and, and talking about how that has... Um, created a space for them to not only make friends but also, yeah, to feel safe uh, and comfortable. Uh, so it covers a lot of ground. But And the other part of it is, yeah, that there are trans and gender diverse people involved in, for instance, the creation of apps, um, in, in hackathons, in all this sort of thing, so sort of actively using technology to uh, to make changes in, in sort of society and to... Uh, assist uh, trans and gender diverse people in many different ways. It's a, it's a very sort of rich film uh, in terms of what it covers. Yeah. Yeah, and trans black, I wanted to also to, to tease out a little bit uh, because one of the things that intrigues me about this is the fact that I guess some people who are less comfortable with the idea of gender diversity, uh, the I don't know the the Corey Bernardis of the world, um, might be saying, "Oh, this is only some kind of modern condition uh, uh, and part of kind of uh, a sign that there is something wrong with with Western culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I don't need to bang on about those kind of cliches because unfortunately we're all exposed to them in, in the mainstream media. But something like trans black, which acknowledges that uh, gender the the, the spectrum of gender diversity has existed for thousands of years mm. in cultures all over the world. Yeah, I mean, in fact, this sort of binary way of thinking uh, is a very Western model, uh, is a very colonial model, in fact, and there are really long histories and traditions in uh, in First Nations culture uh, that, uh, yeah, where there is a third gender or, like, other gender definitions outside man and woman. It's actually very commonplace, um, and we've actually got a few other films in the program that speak to this. Uh, there's a film from Mexico called Mushis, and Mushis is uh, another identity, uh, Indigenous identity in this particular part of Mexico. Uh, yes, so, and there's like so many examples of this, uh, including uh, Ladies in, uh, in Tonga. There's a film in the program on the Sunday called Ladies in Waiting, and Ladies is another uh, identity uh, that's yeah, that's a local identity in Tonga. A lot of uh, transgender women identify as ladies, and so there's a long tradition of of this, and also a long tradition of um, social acceptance uh, having a place in society, in culture. Uh, that we actually 
don't see enough of in Western culture. The sort of uh, there's actually um, there tends to be there's many many examples of non-Western cultures in which trans and gender diverse people actually have a key role in society. And we, yeah, we like to bring that to the fore in the festival. It's also really important, clearly, to have an entire, like a, a program stream that is focused on films about and for young people mm. uh, in order to not only uh, provide entertainment for young trans and gender diverse people, but particularly for, uh, for the younger end of the spectrum, for children themselves, to be able to see themselves reflected on screen rather than, rather than excluded by a, a kind of more kind of, uh, kind of heteronormative or gender normative narrative. Absolutely. I mean, it's really important at, at Tilda that we are inclusive of everybody, that we're attending to, to make sure that we aren't, aren't excluding young people. And, yes, absolutely, it, it's really a great... Uh, opportunity for young trans and gender diverse people to come together to see themselves reflected on screen um, and I mean there's two parts to the festival is watching films but the, the other part is the community aspect and the social aspect which is actually really powerful um, especially for young people who can be quite isolated um, so really excited to, to bring a bunch of young people together to to see themselves reflected on the big screen. Um, it's it's going to be fabulous. Well, I haven't seen uh, all of the films in, in that particular program, but I have seen uh, the film directed by John Sheedy, uh, Mrs McCutcheon, um, yes. which I adore as a film. It's just it's a, a beautiful piece of work. Uh, and I've heard so much about... Uh, uh, Julie Kelsey's film First Day as oh, well, another yeah. Australian short that's in there. Yeah, First Day is an excellent film and it features uh, a trans activist and act, an, a fabulous actor. Uh, she's uh, Evie McDonald. She's a very young trans activist, but also, uh, as it turns out, a very talented actor. So it's a film about, yeah, uh, her first day in high school. Uh, there's actually quite a few films in that use program about uh, the experience of being trans and gender diverse and, and attending school. Uh, so really excited for that that sort of aspect of it. And I think, um, yeah, First Day is a really powerful film um, and also hopefully a sign of, of what's to come. We're talking about Tilda, the uh, Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, which is running from the uh, Thursday the 8th of November until Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre at 45 Moreland Street, Footscray. More information at tildemelbourne.com. That's T-I-L-D-E, tildemelbourne.com. For people who don't know, where does the name Tilda come from? Oh, okay, tilde is actually a, a symbol. It's a mathematical symbol that uh, it's like it means an equivalency between two values. We like it because it's sort of like it's a neither here nor there. It's the sort of approximation, the idea of approximation. And also we, we really needed a shorthand because the other part of the festival title is quite long. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we liked the idea of the tilde because it's, uh, you know, an approximation between two values or it's a neither here nor there, this sort of idea. And we like that in, in terms of how to think about gender. 
Now, back in the day, many years ago now, I was on the programming team at the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. And one of the things that has delighted me over the years the festival has run is that in the, the first 10 years or so of its existence, almost all the films were either from the UK, the USA or Canada. And over time, there's been this real kind of blossoming and growth of stories um, uh, coming from different parts of the world. Uh, Tilda has been around as a festival for a shorter time, but it, have you seen a similar kind of growth in films from uh, non-English speaking countries, for example, or different parts of the world exploring the trans and gender diverse experience on film? Yeah, there definitely has been, um, yeah, some growth, especially in sort of like more feature-length films. Um, we did see some more feature-length films this year. Um, yeah, Tilda's always been so interested in making sure that we do have a lot of programming that's outside the English-speaking uh, places. Like, it's actually a concerted effort to go out and find that work. It has been since the first festival. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it, it's good to see that there's, that there's a little bit more happening and also uh, more work that's made by and in, and in collaboration with trans and gender diverse people. Um, that always is very heartening. We've talked about most of the films in the program in one way or another, from the opening night film to the there's documentary shorts, there's the youth shorts package, trans black, there's a, a short fiction package as well. Uh, uh, Lita in waiting. We've talked about it. Well, we haven't talked about Man Made, the closing night film. Oh yeah, I love Man Made. Uh, Man Made is a documentary made by trans filmmaker T Cooper, and it uh, takes us into the world of trans bodybuilding so there's uh, one uh, only one all transgender uh, bodybuilding comp and it's in the states called fitcon and it this film it's actually uh it follows the lives of uh four different men as they uh prepare to compete in the competition so it's actually the, their personal stories um it's a really engaging film a really moving film about yeah how how we change our bodies and sort of it also is about the importance of of this particular competition to transgender these transgender men um but yeah it's a really excellent and moving film so that's the closing night film that's of right. this year's Tilda, Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival. Uh, if you want more information, jump online, www.tildamelbourne.com. That's T-I-L-D-E, melbourne.com, at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Uh, if Do people just rock up and buy tickets on the night or better the book online? Or Oh, we'd love to get a book online, yep. Uh, so, yeah, go to the website. You can grab tickets uh, there. And you can also probably get them on the door as long as it hasn't sold out. Often we do have quite a few sessions that sell out. So, so in advance is, yeah. uh, is more info and booking details, as we said, at tildamelbourne.com over at Footscray Community Arts Centre. I've been chatting with Louise Malcolm, who's the festival's creative director. Louise, thanks heaps for coming in. Thanks, Richard. I uh, switch on Ben's microphone. My traditional and quick disclaimer when talking about anything related to La Mama. Yes, I'm on the volunteer committee of management. Uh, that 
could potentially be seen as a conflict of interest, me promoting La Mama shows. I do not benefit financially from my involvement with La Mama, etc. Uh, so Ben Grant is also, as it happens, on the Committee of Management at La Mama. He's our treasurer, but he's also uh, an award-winning performer, sound designer, composer, dramaturg, writer, and more. Ben, nice to have you in the studio. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Richard. So you've made a brand new show, which is looking at the, I guess, one of the dominant cultural tropes of our time, which is angry white men railing against what they perceive as a loss of privilege. Yes. Why? Well, uh, it sort of started um, about three or four years ago. Uh, I had a young relative who was um, expressing these views that that uh, they didn't feel that they were allowed to express their own culture, um, coming, as I do, from a sort of an Anglo background, and feeling that migration had changed the Australia of their youth, and they were, at the time, only in their teens. So <laughs> it wasn't that long ago that the timeline... And I felt like I, I sort of felt a bit driven to uh, create a work that was trying to respectfully deal with those feelings that uh, my relative was having and also at the same time sort of debunk the issues. Um, Yeah, so that was the the impetus for it. And uh, then once I started sort of looking into the... Um, the sort of the anger and the frustration and the hurt that these kind of um, this particular cohort of often cisgendered Anglo middle class Australian men uh, feel uh, honestly feel um, I sort of got interested in the connection between those feelings and the privilege and and started sort of zooming in on that and then decided that I really had to, if I was going to make something that would ring true, um, that I had to address my privilege within the show. So that was sort of where it started. It, one of the things that intrigues me about this whole kind of uh, the, the overarching narrative around uh, the perceived loss of privilege by uh, by middle-class straight white men is that what they re- what they perhaps should be railing about is the fact that the middle class is shrinking because of kind of uh, neoliberalism and kind of uh, economic decisions made by the the one percent and so forth. Yeah. But instead of looking, it's the classic thing. Instead of looking at the real enemy, what they do is go well suddenly brown people are getting more publicity than they used to and so they're the enemy. Yeah. So, But how do you explore those kind of issues around privilege and confrontation and victim blaming and Mm. status and perceived loss of status in a show uh, without descending into parody or Mm. without descending into kind of lecturing and and hectoring, which is possibly what I've just been doing for Uh a couple of minutes? Um, well, uh, one of the things, the, the, I suppose the two, uh, the two sort of lenses that I've used for the show that have helped me with, in, rega- in regards to that, um, one of them is that it's a horror. It's a horror show because when I started thinking about um, white, middle-class, cisgendered men under threat, it, it sort of was natural that that would go bad and uh and therefore horror seemed like a genre which of course i i I love myself and it just seemed like a a really nice fit and then the other lens that also helps me uh with that is opera so i'm calling it uh an electropera but um but i am using opera as a lens to view it 
um, for a couple of reasons. And I feel that opera has a kind of an emotional size that is um, uh, that seems appropriate to my pale male character getting on his soapbox and being allowed to express himself and um, sort of mansplain with a full orchestral backing <laughs> it's that that notion about uh the people who usually claim they're being silenced are, of course, the ones who have uh, nationally syndicated newspaper columns, radio programs, TV programs as well. Um, and I love the notion of using opera to kind of tap into that because opera, of course, also speaks directly to privilege. It's uh, the the one of the clichés, which I discovered is a cliché because it's true, is figures from the business world, very influential figures, doing handshake deals and bargaining and negotiating huge multi-million dollar deals or whatever over drinks at the opera. Ah, I didn't know that. It really does happen, which kind of startled me. And I learnt this because an opera company in one of the smaller states with a smaller population said, we can't do that. We can't attract those kind of bargains and and deals and sponsorship because all of the bigwigs are in Sydney and Melbourne. Right. I I mean, I suppose there's a... a Proviso with that is that not all opera is like that. I think, Absolutely. and there's you know there's Chambermaid in Melbourne. There's a lot of companies that are doing really interesting um, work that's not of that sort of scale and not with that sort of support. Who are evolving the art form rather than maintaining its heritage status. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, and you know I also I do like uh, some opera. Um, so I don't want to. I want to make sure that I'm not um, again in the same way that I want to be um, giving giving proper weight to the arguments and not just doing a Trump impersonation, let's say. Um, I also want to acknowledge that I don't claim that I have the uh, the technique or the experience to write or to sing an opera. So what I'm doing is I'm using it as a, as a way of viewing, and that's why I've used this term electropera, because I'm not saying it's an opera. I'm saying it's maybe like we were talking about a development of the form into something that maybe is a little more modern, that's a little shorter uh, and a little more uh, data dense. So you just get a bite, but you get to chew on that bite for quite a while. But it also then provides you with... a sophisticated shorthand to tap into kind of the heightened emotions that the character is feeling because yeah. opera is very much about delivering uh, heightened emotions passionately through music and song. Absolutely. Um, I learned through this process the term park and bark, which is where you stand and take your position at a position on the stage where the conductor can see you and make sure that you come in at the right time and uh, let fly with your um, with your deep felt emotions and of course in many many operas there is a tragic violent death at some point and the rug does not disappoint in that uh, in that regard now, uh, if we're talking about angry white men and the culture around them, one of the first things that springs to mind for me is the Michael Douglas film directed by Joel Schumacher, Falling, Falling Down. Down yeah. um, what kind of research did you have to do in in creating and and the uh, the, the pale male who is the the, the protagonist uh, of yeah. the rug? Uh, look, I did do a lot of research. I wanted to the the, the two things that I wanted to to make sure about. Um, 
what I was doing with the rug. One was I wanted this, and this was partially to do with me uh, interrogating my own privilege. I wanted to make sure that this character was a middle class character, and I wanted to make sure that this was an Australian story and not a, just a sort of a generalised view of middle class men across the world. So I did do a lot of research into the male movement and the alt right in Australia and uh, and uh, um, their their views and and what is at the base of that. So there was a lot of uh, uh, work in in um, just just in reviewing media and and you know sort of current news, I suppose. Yeah. Now uh, you were interviewed for the Age by John Bailey, yeah. uh, who used to be a regular guest on this show, amongst other things. And one of the things he he references is that you've talked about the weaponization of nostalgia mm. in the work, and I, that intrigued me because that's certainly one of the things that you can clearly see uh, in the, I guess, the male movement and the alt-right and so forth. The the things have changed and we don't like it kind of... Problem. Yeah, I remember... Uh, that's actually, uh, to give due, that's John's phrase, not mine, yeah. the weaponization of nostalgia, but I love it. It's kind of like he was explaining my work to, my, to me, which was great. Um, but I remember see, seeing um, an interview with someone, uh, an academic, an Australian academic, about this, the male movement, and his question to them was, okay, you want to go back to this great time that we used to have. When was that time? Can you give me a year? Because I don't know when it was where everything was so beautifully hunky-dory for us all. Um, so I think that's really interesting. I think it is a, a fabrication, that 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 glorious time. It's a myth, you know. It's a myth that, that that's a comfortable myth for people to believe. Um, but with that, with the nostalgia for me, again, trying to create a, an authenticity and a, and a kind of a, a, a truth to the story, um, that's really that sequence, which is quite early in the piece, which uh, relates to a, a sort of suburban milk bar, experience of going to a suburban milk bar as a child back in my in the seventies. Um, that that is a really true. Uh, my attempt at a really true reflection of, of my own experience so and then it is twisted within the show um, so that later on those uh, those tiny elements of the of the milk bar of the 70s come back in in a deranged and horrific way now you've mentioned horror a couple of times now yes. and it, uh, it strikes me that using horror in a work like this uh, can fulfil two roles simultaneously. One, the audience's horror at the angry white man and kind of what angry white men are doing to the world. Hello, Trump. Um, but then the flip side of that is the character himself sees himself as a victim in a horror film of a different kind, that what was safe and familiar has been distorted and twisted uh, and the, the familiar all-white kind of faces of his childhood have been replaced. Yes, I think you're exactly right, uh, he he does say it at one uh, at one stage. If I wasn't so harassed, I wouldn't have to do this. Which again is a quote from something that I read at some point. Um, and, and as you uh, referred to, falling down. I mean, there is that feeling that he just can't take it anymore. And unfortunately, because of his, you know, the. Uh, the dank interior of his mind, it just twists to vengeance as his privilege is pulled away and he feels like uh, 
uh, to use the obvious metaphor, the rug is being pulled out from under him, um, that, that, you know, you're exactly right. So the audience is watching, they see the horror of his position, they also see him honestly feeling extremely threatened, even though all he has to do is open his heart and embrace his brothers and sisters on earth and we'd all be all right. Ben, it sounds like this could be an uncomfortable character for you to spend a prolonged amount of time with. Oh, I don't know. I'm an old hack. Uh, <laughs> I've been doing this performance stuff for, you know, uh, about uh, 40 years and uh, I, I, I enjoy putting something on, uh, you know, within a very strict structure it goes for 40 minutes i put it on at the beginning and i take it off at the end and uh, I, I don't i don't um personally have that problem of it bringing it home or something except that every time i switch on the news there's something <laughs> horrific on there but that's a different problem the rug is on at la mama courthouse it opened last night uh, and is running through until the 11th of november if you've not been to la mama courthouse before 349 drummond street in carlton uh, and more info at lamama.com.au runs for about 40 45 minutes uh, and you can book by calling 934 934- Seven six nine four eight. That's nine three four seven six nine four eight or www.lamama.com.au. Uh, I've been talking to Ben Grant, who's uh, made and is uh, performing in the rug. As I mentioned at the start of the conversation, he's not just an actor, uh, but he's also a sound designer and composer. Uh, and uh, thanks for coming in, Ben. Thanks for your interest. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.